The scripture for this morning's sermon is the second letter of John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would now allow the light of your word to shine in our midst, and I pray that you would give us wisdom to walk in the way. Teach us what it means to establish the true worship of the true God in our lives. Teach us what it means to remember, to press on, and to watch over ourselves. Father, thank you for how you've already used Second John, and thank you for what you'll do today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Last week we met it together on Second John, and we sought to understand, first of all, why he wrote the letter and a little bit about what he had to say to the church to which he wrote. We discovered that he wrote this particular letter to one church, probably while he was located at and ministering in the midst of, an, of another church. And we saw that he, he was aiming to encourage them with three things. He wanted them to remember the things that they had been taught. And not just in their minds, but in their way of life. He wanted them to remember to love the Lord above all things and to obey his commands, to listen to his words and follow in his wisdom. Again, he wanted them to remember not just their minds, but in their way of life. And then second, he wanted them to love one another. He wanted them to walk in fellowship and be faithful to each other the way God had been faithful to them. First of all, he just wanted them to remember And then he encouraged them to press on. He was so encouraged by the things that he saw in their lives. And he was just encouraging them, press on, press on, press on. It reminds me of the more and more of of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul was just telling the church, do more and more of what you're already doing. John was encouraged by the life of this church, but he wanted them to press on. 
And then finally, he told them to watch for themselves, watch out for themselves. There were people in the world trying to deceive them. And so he wanted them to keep their eyes open. He didn't want them to be paranoid on the one hand or nitpicking against every detail on the other hand. He just wanted them to be awake. He wanted them to be aware. He wanted them to be alert. He wanted them to know that there are forces in the world seeking to deceive us away from Christ and from each other. And he wanted them to play their part in persevering in the faith. This week I want to apply John's teaching to our lives together by addressing two modern heresies and thinking with you through some of the details of what it means for us to remember, press on, and watch out. And the way that I want to do this is I want to ask three questions of two different heresies. First of all, what is the threat that this heresy uh, poses to the church? Number two, how does this threat get to us? How do people seek to influence us with false teaching? And number three, what should we do about the threat? So if we were to apply these questions to John's context, we would say, what is the threat? First of all, the threat was that people were teaching something false about Jesus, something seriously false about Jesus. They weren't trifling around with minor details, things about which we can legitimately disagree and even debate with one another. They were altering the fundamental teaching of Jesus and saying that he was not actually a man that he had not actually come in the flesh, that he was not the propitiation for our sin, that he did not offer himself up as the sacrifice for sin. In fact, they taught that Judas or someone else substituted and, and, and actually was the one who hung up on the cross, but that Jesus himself could not have died on a cross because he wasn't actually a flesh and blood man. So you can see that they're not trifling around with minor disagreements. They're changing the nature of the gospel. And to use the Apostle Paul's language, their gospel, therefore, was accursed. It was not something that the church could play around with. They had to face this threat head on. They had to seek to love these people and persuade them about the truth. But they certainly could not allow themselves to be deceived. How did the threat get to that church? Well, the main way that these people were getting to folks was coming in from one town to another and knocking on the doors of Christians and seeking private time with them in their homes. And while they sat in their homes around tables of fellowship, they would talk to them about their beliefs about Jesus and try to deceive them. They were trying to deceive them in private contexts where they could not be tested. This was the main way that they were trying to get their teaching through. So then what was the church to do? Well, first of all, the church was to press on in the things of God. You know, the most, the most effective weapon we have against any heresy is just to love the God who is truth. It is by far the most effective weapon. Know him, love him, follow him, listen to him, love one another. This in itself will outfit you to face down all kinds of things. Last week I told you about a friend of mine, Tom, who wrote to me after a lot of years of us not really interacting together. We're Facebook buddies, but we haven't really interacted. But there's been a few folks that are trying to deceive him, and he didn't feel right about it. So he reached out to me to ask me what I thought, and this week I answered back to him. And just last night he wrote to me and told me what a relief he felt to hear my answers about some of his questions, because he said that after so many years of drug use, it's very hard for him to keep his mind straight about lots of things. But he believes in Jesus and he believes that the Bible is the word of God and he felt like the things that people were trying to teach him weren't right but he didn't know why. But that's what I want to highlight this morning, beloved. Here's a guy who basically destroyed his brain through drug use and sinfulness and rebellion but God is protecting him by giving him this instinct that that's the wrong way, that's the right way. The most effective weapon we have 
is to love God and love each other by far. And second, John just said, listen, when these people come to town, don't let them into your house. And he's not saying we should, that they shouldn't love these people. He was not saying that they shouldn't pray for these people. He was not saying that they shouldn't share the gospel with these people. What he was saying is do not give them a private context for deceit. Do not cooperate them with them in what they're trying to do. It's very important that we understand this because there's actually lots of cult-like groups that love to use Second John to justify cutting people out of our lives when they, when they cease to believe what we believe. That's not what John is saying here. He's just saying don't give them an audience with you in order to deceive you. So with that, We're going to now take that basic model and apply it to two modern heresies. I chose two of these. First of all, I want to talk with you about the Mormon church. And second, I want to talk about the LGBT movement, specifically as it relates to a particular segment of people who are deliberately seeking to infiltrate and persuade the evangelical church. I chose the Mormon church because it's, it's fairly easy to explain the differences in doctrine between biblical Christianity and them, and also one of their 75 congregations in the state of Minnesota is only about five miles away from here, and they have been actively working this area for the last how many ever years? I, time has kind of flown by. It's probably been eight or ten years now. And so I know Kim and I have had some interactions with Mormons. I trust that some of you have as well, and I just want us to be equipped to stand for the truth in love. I want us to be equipped to understand the differences between us and them and to love them. Then with the LGBT movement, I chose that because I consider this to be the greatest threat to the church in the West in light of any other threat that there is out there. I really think this is a great danger to the gospel among us and we need to equip ourselves to understand what's happening and why it's happening. Unfortunately, I'm gonna barely even be able to really touch on the issues, but I wanna get the conversation started with you today. So let's begin with the Mormon church, and I want to start by addressing the first question, what is the threat that this church uh, presents to biblical Christianity? Well, there's much to be said about Mormonism, and I want to encourage you to research this on your own. There's a lot of really good information out there, and you can find out a lot on your own. If you'd like some suggestions, I've got good suggestions of videos and books that that are helpful, and I think straightforward and fair. But I want to talk for just a few moments with you about their view of the Bible, about their view of God, and about their view of sin and salvation. With regard to the Bible, Mormons teach that the Bible itself was corrupted and that Joseph Smith was sent by God to correct the Bible. Please hear that. That's coming out of his mouth. He felt that over centuries of time, the Bible had been corrupted and God sent him to correct the Bible. God sent him to be the final means of revelation to the world. In 1998, Kim and I visited the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, and there we saw on display one of Joseph Smith's Bibles where he had crossed out sentences of the Bible and added in words of his own. For many years, the Bible that the Mormons used was the King James Version, but edited by Joseph Smith. In the late 70s, they came to realize that this was going to be a big problem for them in dealing with American culture, and so they changed their point of view, or they changed their tactics at least. And what they did is they began in 1979 to publish the King James Version as it is, but with their explanatory notes from Genesis to Revelation. 
So if you see a commercial today where the Bible, uh, where the Mormons offer to you a free Bible, they will send you a free Bible, and it really is the King James Bible uh, straight, just like any other King James Bible, but with it will be all their explanatory notes, which is designed to persuade you about the Mormon way of thinking about a host of things. But the main thing I want you to understand is they feel that Joseph Smith in particular was sent to correct the word of God. That's something we have to really get our minds around. In addition to that, on some particular day, Joseph Smith claims that an angel named Moroni guided him to some golden tablets, which he then translated, but I want to hold that word translated very loosely because it's not any translation in any real formal or technical sense of the word. It's really just, I think, the imaginations of his own mind. The translation, if we can call it that, of these tablets became the Book of Mormon, because Mormon is the name of the supposed prophet who first wrote the tablets. So there's Joseph Smith who encounters an angel. The angel leads him to these tablets that supposedly were written by a prophet named Mormon. Joseph Smith supposedly, by way of a miracle, translated those tablets. That became the Book of Mormon. The name Mormon, though, will kind of help you understand the, the nature of the Mormon church and the, and the lies that it presents, because Here's what the word Mormon is made of. It's made of an English word and, a, frankly, a made-up Egyptian word. It's made up of the word mor and a supposed Egyptian word, M-O-N, mon. But there is no Egyptian word mon. Mor means just what it means. Mon supposedly means good, so that Mormon means more good or better. Joseph Smith argued that the Book of Mormon was the most perfect book ever given to humanity and that it was and is a necessary corrective to the Bible. Please understand this. They feel that their other sacred book is the necessary interpretive grid through which we have to understand the Word of God. In addition to that, they have two other books. One is called The Doctrine and Covenants, and the other is called The Pearl of Great Price. Those books have a secondary place in the life of the church, but still an important place. They're made up of Joseph Smith's writings, made up of his lectures. But again, the most important thing that I can say to you uh, here about any of these books is that they're designed to be the interpretive grid by which we must read the Word of God. And I want to encourage you to understand this, that with any heresy, with any false teaching, you have to begin by looking at their sources of authority because that's usually how groups justify their teaching is they alter or they exchange sources of authority. And the Mormons have done both of those things. First of all, they've altered the Bible. Second of all, they have usurped the Bible's place by putting their books above the Bible as the interpretive grid by which we must understand it. All heretical groups have this in common. Some way or other, they alter or exchange the source of authority. So if you were wondering what's a group really about, begin there. Begin asking this question. What do they look to ultimately for their authority? And with regard to Mormons, that's what it is. So then, when we come to the doctrine of God, we see that Joseph Smith and the Mormon church today believes and teaches the oldest lie on the face of the planet, namely that men can become God. And I do mean men. Only males are able to fully become God and the hope of females is to be attached to the right man who is pursuing godhood so that when he becomes God, she'll essentially ride his coattails into the next um, age. One of their former prophets and priests, a man named Lorenzo Snow, once said, as, as man is, God once was, and as God is, so man may become. 
So keep that in mind. As man is right now, so God once was, and as God is, so man may become. So with that in mind, let's talk now about what they teach about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They call God the Father, the Heavenly Father, and they believe that he was once a sinful man. Please keep that in your mind. They believe that God was once a sinful man who became a God through a process of obedience and through a process of learning so that he was eventually entrusted with this planet in which we now dwell, namely the earth. They call him Elohim, which is just one of the generic names for God in the Bible. I'm not actually sure why they choose that name out of the many names that God has called in the Bible, but that's what they call the Heavenly Father. They believe that the Heavenly Father had wives while he was a man and that those wives became his spiritual wives when he ascended to become a God. They believe that he had intimate relationships with them as a spiritual being and that they created together many spirit children and in this way populated the earth. They believe that Jesus Christ was the first of those spirit children and they believe that Lucifer was the second of those spirit children. So in the Mormon mindset, Jesus and Satan are actually brothers. They prefer to call Satan Lucifer, but we're talking about the same thing. And really the only difference between them is that Jesus submitted to the way of God and ended up becoming a God, and Lucifer rebelled against God and ended up doing nothing but causing a lot of problems. But I want to be very clear that Mormons do not believe that Jesus was or is the immortal God who became a man. Rather, they believe that he was a mortal man and a sinful man at that who became God through a process of following in their ways. With regard to the Holy Spirit, they call him the Holy Ghost probably because they pull on the King James Version and that was the older way of talking about the Holy Spirit. And they teach that he is one with the Father and one with Jesus in purpose, but that he is a completely separate being. So just let that sink in for a second. They will teach that they believe in the Holy Spirit, but they see him as a completely separate God who was never a man, who never had a body, who never had bones, who never had flesh, and yet he is a separate being from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's only begotten Son. So here's the deceptiveness about it, is that they're willing to use biblical terms to advance their teachings, but the truth is that they completely reject the Trinity. They don't teach anything biblical at all about God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. They have completely altered the teaching about the nature of God. And this is the second thing I just kind of want to bring to your attention, because I'm just using this as one example. The world is filled with false prophets. We need to understand like the path of testing people. So first of all, pay attention to sources of authority. Second of all, pay attention to what any group of people teaches about the nature of God. All false teaching ultimately traces back to false thinking about the nature of God. And when you see a group of people that teach things this false about the nature of God, you can know that every single other thing they teach about God and the things of God is is corrupt, period. This is a, a universal principle, I think, of all heresy, that they alter the biblical teachings about God in one way, shape, or form. So then, with regard to sin and salvation... They believe that all people have sinned. They do believe that Jesus died to overcome physical death 
and that he paved the way for us to be able to have salvation. For them, there are now, at this point in their history, they argue that there are three levels of heaven, and then there's the possibility of divinity for those who, who fully follow in the Mormon way. What they believe is that Jesus, through his death on the cross, cleaned the slate, as it were, so that now you have the chance to earn your salvation with God, but you must earn it. This is why 18-year-olds get on bicycles and go for two years all over the world to share the Mormon message because they have to do that as part of their effort to earn their salvation with God. In order to be saved in a Mormon way of thinking, you first of all have to put your faith in Jesus, also in Joseph Smith and his successors, and you have to display your faith in them by being baptized into the Mormon church. They believe that no one can be saved apart from the Mormon church. We are not afraid to boldly teach the things of God. We are not afraid to boldly preach and teach the Bible here. We are not afraid to tell you that every single believer not only has to join a church, but they become the church. They become part of the bride of Christ. But we would never tell you that the only way you can actually be saved is by joining this church or by joining only our family of churches. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a mark of many heretical movements that they come to say that the only way you can know God is to buy into everything we think, buy into everything we teach, and do everything that we command you to do. Second thing you have to do to be saved in their system is to obey the commands of God and also the laws and ordinances of their church. Number three, you have to follow in the way of wisdom, by which they mean you have to abstain from alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. Now, maybe the first two of those, you guys were like, well, that's not such a big deal. I can handle abstaining from alcohol and tobacco, but caffeine? No way. What would happen to us as a people if we couldn't drink caffeine anymore? But to be a good Mormon, to earn your way into heaven and perhaps to divinity, you have to abstain from those things. Finally, number four, you have to earn a temple recommend so that as a man, you can be married in a Mormon temple. Some sects among them would say to only one wife, others would still allow marriage to multiple wives, but that becomes the entrance into many rites and rituals that are held back from the public and even from many, many Mormons. The bottom line is that even though they wildly change the nature of salvation, we can still say that salvation for Mormons comes through works and not by grace. They actually teach, and I could show you quotes where they actually teach that one of the most uh, horrible doctrines ever to fill the earth is that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. They believe that we must add our works. They believe that we must earn our way up to God. Beloved, I've barely said anything about their doctrine, but I hope I've said enough to help you understand that Mormons teach a completely different gospel, and to use the words of the Apostle Paul, therefore they are accursed. Let me just read you Paul's words so that you know that I'm trying to be as gracious and as accurate as I can with this. Here's what Paul said. But even if we, the apostles, <clears throat> or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Joseph Smith came 1,800 years after Paul said that and preached another gospel. And I will leave it to the Lord to determine what it means to say that he is accursed or that any particular Mormon is accursed or that the church is accursed. I'll leave that in the Lord's hands. That's not for me to say what that really means. But here's one thing that I can say clearly passionately, and I hope also compassionately. You cannot be a biblical Christian and a Mormon. They are completely different faiths. 
They are completely different religions. There is simply no way to be one and the other. Now, having said that, one thing I learned about the Mormon church in the late 80s and early 90s as we were interacting with some Mormons in Southern California is that there is a great difference between the leadership of the church and those who attend the church. That's probably true in any church group, but with Mormons, the difference between leadership and followership is pretty vast. There's a lot of followers in the Mormon church that have no idea what they teach about God and the things of God. They would be surprised, perhaps even angered by some of the things that I have said this morning. There was a family in our first church in California, not, not that I was the pastor of, but I was just a member of, who came out of the Mormon church, and when we were first telling them about some of these things, they became very angry. And we just encouraged them to go research these things for themselves, and they did, and found out that they were all true, and that even more was true. And they felt betrayed because they felt that the church had deliberately withheld from them the true teaching of the church. So I've never been inside of a Mormon church. I've never been a part of a church congregation. I don't want to throw stones at them that should not be thrown at them. All I know is that I have learned over time that we need to distinguish between the leaders and the followers. And I think to the followers, we need to give a lot of compassion to them. Tim worked with a woman who attended a Mormon, the, the Mormon church right down the road here, and she would cry at the thought, that a Christian cannot be a Mormon and a Mormon cannot be a Christian, mainly because she didn't really understand the differences between the two. So I'm just saying we need to be wise about that. We need to be as compassionate as possible. But for now, let's talk about the second question quickly. How does the threat of Mormonism get to us? Well, generally speaking, I have seen Mormons approach their work in three ways. First of all, they aggressively engage in personal solicitation, whether that be going door to door, whether that be handing out literature in public places, whether that be inviting people to their events. This is part of their earning of salvation. They see this as a, a necessary way that they must get themselves to God. And so there is an aggressiveness in their solicitation that isn't there with many other groups. Second, Mormons strongly believe in using acts of kindness as a way of persuading people to join the church. For those who more deliberately know what they're doing, I think that what they're thinking is that if people see how nice we are, they'll believe what we believe and they'll come into the church. And once they're in the church, then we can persuade them about any number of things. But beware. We too believe that we ought to love people with the love of Christ. We believe this. But we believe that we ought to do it without ulterior motives. I would lay down my lives for my neighbors that I've been praying for every day. Yes, including the neighbor that's mad at me right now because I trimmed my bush in my yard. I don't have any issues left in my heart about this, by the way, to be clear. I would lay my life down for this guy. I mean it. I would. For the glory of Jesus, I would do that. And if he never came to this church, I would still say that to you. It's not a ploy to grow the church. Christian love is given because love from God through us ought to be given, period. What I'm trying to tell you is that at least the leadership of the Mormon church sees this as a tactic. Number three, Mormons are very, very skilled at using advertising campaigns and cultural engagement with things like the Olympics that they hosted in Salt Lake City a few years ago to promote their church and more importantly to blur the lines between biblical Christianity and Mormonism. Please pay attention to all of the advertisements you see from this day forward, and you will see an intentional blurring 
They're trying to persuade people that there's really not much difference between Mormons and biblical Christians so that you'll see their churches as equal to going to any other church on the planet. Again, I distinguish between leadership and followership, but at a leadership level, this is a very intentional thing. By the way, just so you know, I, did, I took a master's level class in this in 1996, read a lot of books, interviewed Mormon leaders, did a lot of research, and from that day to this day, I've continued to do a lot of reading and research about this. I'm not in the neighborhood of an expert, but I do want to tell you that I'm not just talking off the top of my head. These are things that I have seen and researched over much time and I believe to be true. The leaders are deliberately seeking to deceive folks by blurring the lines between Christianity biblical Christianity and Mormonism. So then what are we to do about this? If that's how they're trying to get to us, what should we do? Well, number one, I would go back to John's main advice, and that is remember to love the Lord your God and love one another above everything. It's the greatest weapon we have. The true love of God will clear up so many things. In the first four or five weeks that I was a believer, I had a Jehovah's Witness and a Mormon trying to persuade me to come into their church. I knew nothing about anything. It was only four weeks earlier that I had darkened the door of a church for the first time in my life. I knew nothing about anything, but there was an instinct in me that said something's not right about this. God protected me. To love the Lord our God and to love one another is the greatest defense we have because our God is the truth and our God is our shield. So put him first, love him most. Second, I would encourage you to pray for Mormons and develop your love for them. Pray for those who are working in our area. Pray for your family and your friends and acquaintances that are Mormons or are being in, influenced by the Mormon church. What I'm saying is let's understand these people are not our enemies. Our, our enemies are, are not flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of darkness. Let's love people who are being deluded and need to hear the gospel of truth. Let's not turn our hearts against people who need to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And in fact, I gotta tell you, Robbie Zacharias has taken a lot of flack for his interaction with upper echelon Mormon leaders, but I praise God for his boldness to do that. And I praise God for updates I received a few months ago that some of the upper leaders in the Mormon church seem to be moving toward a biblical view of Christianity. And when I saw that update, it just, it just fired up my intercessions for these people. What a glory it would be to see an entire false church turn toward the true and living God. So what I'm saying is let's stoke the fire of love in the courts of the Lord for Mormon people. Third, as you pursue the Lord and pray for Mormons, learn what you can about them and equip yourselves to engage with them. And I wanna encourage you, you don't have to be an expert. All you gotta do is be able to open up the Bible to a few texts and just have open conversations about the Bible. One thing that I would encourage you to do is just to tell them, I, I don't wanna talk about the Book of Mormon or, or, or your other books. If you accept the Bible as the word of God, let's just start there and let's talk about what God says about himself. Just start there. And don't be afraid. We have no need to fear lies. The light is not afraid of the darkness. The truth is not afraid of lies. We have no reason to be afraid of Mormons. Our job is not even to persuade or convert them. It's simply to proclaim the truth of Christ and let the Holy Spirit do his work. So again, pursue God, pray for these people, and, and equip yourself to engage them. If you don't feel like you can engage them, I would tell you what John told that church in this day. If they come knocking on your door, don't let them in. But as for Kim and I, anytime one of these people knocks on our door, if we're home and we're able, I'll let them in because I want to talk to them. And it's not because I want to get into an argument with them. It's because I care about them. I care 
that human beings are believing a false gospel and going into an eternity that they have no understanding of. So with that, let's now turn our attention to the LGBT movement, specifically as that relates to some efforts to infiltrate and persuade the evangelical church with regard to gender, sexuality, and marriage, and actually even with regard to God himself. The LGBT movement is very complex and it's very emotional. There's many aspects to it and I I fear a little bit even bringing it up because there's just not enough time to really go into a lot of details and be as nuanced as I want to be, but I want to try to draw a picture for you of a few groups that are specifically targeting evangelical churches. And I do want to tell you that I went to a a liberal seminary in the mid-1990s and I studied along with LGBT activists. I got to know them. I had meals with them. I, 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 I interacted with them in lots of different ways. I read everything they asked me to read. I searched the scripture from top to bottom. I'm not, again, anywhere in, the ex, in, anywhere in the neighborhood of being an expert in these issues, but I'm trying to tell you that for years I've been doing my homework about this, and I think we owe it to people to do that. I think we owe it to people to look into the issues so that we can share the truth, but with love. I learned to love people that I profoundly disagreed with. I sat in many seminary classes with a practicing lesbian or homosexual sitting right next to me, and we would openly disagree about all kinds of things, and yet I cared about this person because God gave me that care. So what I want us to do is learn to grow a little bit in being able to stand for the truth but in love, and I hope that we'll learn to do that with particular respect. So with regard to the first question, what is the threat that this poses to the church? I think it's obvious enough that the front door to the heresy of the LGBT movement is the topic of gender, sexuality, and marriage. The main goal of the LGBT community that is seeking to influence the evangelical church is to persuade us that we have actually been wrong in our understanding of several key scriptures and to change our point of view so that we will embrace the homosexual lifestyle. Please understand this. They are determined to persuade us that we have misunderstood the Bible. And the way they're doing that is by focusing on six particular texts. I listed them for you on the PowerPoint. I'm not going to list them out for you here uh, verbally, and I'm not going to be able to, to say really anything about any of these texts in particular, but I want you to see the texts. I want you to see the ones that they're arguing for and arguing about. And what they're trying to help us see is that if you understood the biblical culture behind these texts, you would completely understand these, you would understand these texts in a completely different way. So basically, here's how people like Tony Campolo, Matthew Vines, Justin Lee, Rachel Held Evans, here's how they make their argument. Everything I've read, they begin with an affirmation that they believe that the Bible is the living word of God and the final source of authority for Christian belief and practice. They claim to embrace the Bible and embrace the homosexual lifestyle. This is key to understanding where they're coming from. There are other LGBT groups, obviously, that don't believe any of that and don't claim to believe any of that. I'm trying to focus our attention on several groups that do claim to accept the Bible and embrace a homosexual lifestyle. Second, then, they argue that when the Bible speaks of homosexuality of various kinds, that it is not addressing the committed love of two consenting adults, no matter what their gender, but that it's addressing other kinds of immoral practices that I don't even want to name out loud here in church this morning, especially because there's children among us. 
But the point we need to understand is that they're saying that committed love is what the Bible is about. It doesn't really matter who the two consenting adults are. It doesn't really matter what their gender is. And what they're trying to persuade us of is that this is actually a biblical point of view. So let me just respond in three ways. First of all, I think if you carefully look at each of those six texts just on your own, you don't need to have advanced education. If you just read them in context, I think you're going to see that they are the ones who are actually misconstruing and misinterpreting those texts. I agree along with them that there are issues that are greater than just homosexual behavior involved in every single one of those texts. I agree with that, but I do not agree at all. Just biblically speaking, I do not agree at all that the Bible is arguing for committed love no matter what the gender. It's just simply not true. Knowledge of biblical culture is important, but here's a warning sign. Anytime that a group tells you that a very sophisticated knowledge of biblical culture is necessary for you to understand their point of view on the scripture and a true interpretation of scripture, you can know that you're in in a dangerous territory. You don't have to have a PhD or a master's degree or a bachelor's degree in biblical culture, which by the way, stretches over 13 or 1400 years, so it's really more like biblical cultures, plural. You don't have to be an expert in all that to understand very plain texts of scripture. The apostle Peter and the apostle John had no education at all, and yet they became leading pillars of the early church because what you need is the Holy Spirit in you and you need access to the word of God. And again, I'm not saying that biblical culture doesn't matter. I'm just saying that it's automatically a sign that something's wrong when someone tells you you have to have advanced knowledge before you can understand a simple verse. Second of all, proponents of this point of view tend to ignore a host of other verses and paragraphs in the Bible that more subtly but still clearly touch on issues of gender, sexuality, and marriage. There's a lot more than six texts in the Bible that talk about these things, a lot more. And what you'll see when you read their writings is that often all of that broader context is ignored because it actually argues against and not for their point. And finally, the proponents of this view tend to ignore the broader biblical context. The guy like Matthew Vines actually does try to take it on, but many of them ignore the broader biblical context. And what I'm talking about is the fact that the Bible begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage. The Bible begins with the marriage of a man and a woman who were designed to come together to reflect the image of God in a number of ways. And the Bible ends with uh, the marriage of Jesus Christ and his bride. He is the husband, she is the wife, the church. It begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage. I heard a, a leading pastor in this city who's a liberal I heard the story of him saying to another pastor, if you would just cut those six texts out of your Bible, this whole issue wouldn't even be an issue. And I thought immediately to myself, well, I have an issue with that. In a sense, the whole Bible is founded on a particular view of gender, sexuality, and marriage. The whole Bible. And I'm not saying every verse is about this topic directly, but I am saying indirectly, every verse of the Bible is built on this basic foundation of one man and one woman united in a covenant marriage until death do them part. This was an imaging of God to heaven and earth, and it is now an imaging of Christ and the church. Now, as it is with any false teaching, false teaching ultimately either flows out of a misunderstanding of God or it causes us to have to alter our our visions of God. And this is true in this case as well. There are some 
they would identify themselves as Christian LGBT persons who are very much on the far left liberal wing. Probably the easiest one to recommend that you look into is a group called UM Forward, so United Methodist Forward, UM Forward. If you look, uh, look them up, you'll see their Facebook page and such. And you'll quickly see that not only do they teach that the homosexual lifestyle is acceptable, but they are actually suggesting, and this is their language, that God himself is queer. One of their sayings that they have bumper stickers, t-shirts, all the, all, all, all the stuff about goes something like this, I've met God and they're queer. They actually are suggesting that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have a kind of same-sex attraction to each other. I, I trembled when I wrote that in my notes. I trembled to say that out loud. But that's the kind of stuff that's being taught, beloved. And I'm telling you, it won't be long before some evangelicals are persuaded and try to get us to think these things about God as well. But for the time being, those who claim to embrace a biblical view of God and claim to embrace homosexuality, what they're teaching is that the imaging of God does not have to do with male and female. It simply has to do with committed love. They're claiming that God is perfectly imaged by any two consenting adults who consent and covenant to love one another until death do them part. But I don't think it takes a whole lot for us to realize that this simply cannot be true. All you have to do is go back to Genesis 1 and read what it means to image God. God made them male and female. He brought them together. Through their covenant love, they were supposed to procreate and fill the earth. In other words, as an overflow of their covenanted love, they were to bring life into the earth. We actually are used of God to bring about beings who will last, who will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. God uses us to do this. And this is vital to our imaging of God, and it requires a male and a female. And then he told the male and the female to take dominion over the earth together so that together, male and female, they would image God through procreation and through dominion in the earth. This requires a particular view of marriage. And the Bible goes on from there to uphold that view of marriage. It doesn't take much to see that marriage, from a biblical point of view, must be between a man and a woman in covenant love forever until death do them part at least. This is why I'm eager to get there. Probably it'll take us a long time to get there, but if we ever make it to Revelation chapter 18, it amazes me that in Revelation chapter 18, all sexual immorality is vanquished from the earth. It's destroyed. Do you know what the very next verses are? Revelation chapter 19? It's the announcement of the wedding of Jesus and his bride. All sexual deviants, heterosexual and homosexual alike, done away with. And now comes the marriage of Jesus Christ, and John calls him in Revelation 15, the wife of Christ, the church, his bride. Beloved, it's just really a pretty simple matter. The Bible's very clear about this, that there are such a thing as men, and there are such a thing as women, and there's not 20, 30, 70 genders, whatever they're saying now. There are two. And covenant love is to be between a man and a woman in marital commitment until death do them part. It's pretty plain biblically. Marriage is a lifelong covenant that is designed to image God to the world. And if you're gonna change the nature of marriage, you will inevitably have to change your teaching about the nature of God. So pay close attention, pay very close attention. There's so much more that needs to be said about this. And last night as I was trying to 
to get the final things ready for this morning. I came to think that I might just offer a class sometime this fall or in the early spring. I would really like to be able to sit and talk with you about these things at length and record it so that we can offer more information. But I really do want you to understand that there are groups of people who are specifically targeting evangelical people in churches to persuade us about these things. I'm not paranoid. I'm just telling you the truth. So how does this threat get to us? What are they seeking to try to do? This specific kind of threat is coming to us through books like Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian. It's coming through other publications. It's coming through social media, and it's coming through conferences and movements. Matthew Vine's movement is called the Reformation Project, carefully chosen term, the Reformation Project. And their particular design is to persuade evangelical people and evangelical churches, not the liberals. Second, Matthew Vine and others are aggressively encouraging those who struggle with gender identity in the church to be vocal about their experiences in such a way that they're advocating for the church to change their point of view. Now, I'm going to stand with him all day long and say, if you're struggling with that or anything else, you ought to be able to talk about that here. The people of God, the family of God is a family of grace. But because we live by grace, we also have to live by the light of truth. And I hope that any of us, whether our struggles have to do with this or something else, that we would feel free to share. But I must say that in order to show love to each other, we have to first obey the commands of God. And God is very clear about these things. The most loving thing we can do for a person struggling with their sexuality is to speak the truth in love. Both of those things. The truth in love. The truth with compassion. But what I see Matthew Vines, Tony Campolo, and others doing is encouraging people to pull the heartstrings so that we'll be more led by our affections than by the word of God. So, beloved, watch out. Beware. Third, I think part of why these movements are succeeding is because the broader culture is not only supportive of the LGBT movement, but it's aggressively advocating for it and aggressively punishing all who disagree with it. I don't know if the day is really all that far anymore until pastors will end up in prison or jail or whatever for preaching sermons like I'm preaching right now. I've often wondered if we're going to be able to stay in this place if the right person just happens to hear a sermon like this and makes the right phone call and we're out of here. I don't know. I just think the day's coming. But part of the reason this is succeeding is because there's a larger cultural platform that's mainly coming to us through media. So I just want to encourage you, watch out. Beware. People are trying to persuade us of things that are not true. So then, what should we do? Simple advice, four quick things. As I said earlier, primarily we have to pursue God and love one another. It's the greatest weapon that we have. Number two, we need to be wise about the forces that are actually targeting us and aggressively seeking to persuade us. Again, I don't think we need to be paranoid on the one hand or nitpicking on the other hand, but we have to be aware of the threats. There are groups like the Reformation Project that are specifically out to persuade people like us. And I haven't heard the details of what has happened to Josh Harris, but I think there's going to be more people like him. That somehow through interactions with people like this, we're persuaded and leave the faith. Beloved, watch yourselves. Beware. We have real enemies in this world. Three, we need to take care of our consumption of media and pay careful attention to what it's doing to persuade us about things. One of the greatest agendas, I actually read this in Berkeley in the mid-90s, that one of the greatest agendas of the LGBT movement even then was to take control of the media and normalize homosexual behavior. 
Well, they succeeded. Pretty much, that's done. So, again, I'm not saying we should let all this cause us to hate people. I'm just saying be aware that the things you see on television and through other type of media are specifically designed to persuade you about things. Be aware. Keep your eyes on the Lord and don't be persuaded. Four, I want to say about LGBT people just what I said about the Mormons. We need to love people. We need to love strugglers. We need to love those who are broken. We need to love those who are hurting. I've never struggled with these kind of issues in my own life, but I have had significant struggles, even in the area of sexuality. Nobody gets out of life on this earth without being sexually broken in one way, shape, or form. Let us have compassion, beloved. Let us reach out in love. Let us not set our hearts over against people who need to hear the hope of Christ. I don't want anything that I'm saying today to come across as, as, a hateful, as, as hateful or as trying to, to turn us against people, I want to say pray and be as compassionate as possible and at the same time be aware and speak the truth in love. In the end, I think John's counsel for his church is exactly what we need today, whether we're talking about Mormonism, the LGBT movement, or any number of other heresies. We need to remember the things that we've been taught, press on in the love of God and the love of one another, and watch ourselves together as a people. Watch ourselves. Talk about these things. Not be paranoid, not be nitpicking, but be watchful. May the Lord help us. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us in Second John. This little letter, even I have neglected it so much in my life, but oh, how I love this letter. And I have been so helped by the hours I've spent with you meditating on this letter. I pray that the church will also be blessed. And I pray that you will have enlightened us a little bit more as to how to remember you, to press on, and to watch out for ourselves. Father, please help us in these things. If I've said anything, Father, that's not pleasing to you, I pray that you would correct me through your people. I pray that you'd cause your people to forget it. But the things that I've said that are true, I pray that you would cause those things to stick and to guide us in the way. We thank you, Father, for speaking to us today, and we thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.